check. Four, three, two, one. And we're live. Welcome to the King's Crowd Startup Podcast, keeping you in tune to what's going on in the online private markets and empowering everyone to become a startup investor. I am Sean O'Reilly, King's Crowd CMO, and joining me is King's Crowd's founder and CEO, Crystal Serino. What's going on, man? Hey, good to see you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Uh, how'd you spend your holiday? I uh, spent it with a bunch of family, had a great time kind of getting away from work for a little bit, but uh, very excited to be back and really looking forward to a, uh, to a big 2021. It has already been big. I <laughs> it, it's, um, it's been interesting. There's no doubt about that. But on the positive side of things, I think in our universe of the world that we're talking about here, um, I think things are looking really up in 2021. So, you know, we're going through our challenges as a, as a nation, but I'm excited about where we're headed. For sure. Um, so today we have something pretty cool. Um, it's a new year, so we have a review of the online private markets for 2020. So hopefully we can get a glimpse of what's going to happen in 2021. Um, it was obviously a crazy year, but beneath the surface of all that happened in the past 12 months, the online private markets have continued to grow, as we all know. And a uh, recent stock market activity has shown that the basically the online private markets, as our friend Vin would say, are more important than ever. Um, some noted developments in the past 12 months have been secondary markets slowly opening up, giving valuable liquidity and perhaps more importantly, feedback to investors. Uh, the SEC raising the regulation CF limit from $1.07 million to $5 million, which we talked about last podcast, is more than enough to get anybody going as a startup. And uh, further consolidation of the market around several major platforms like WeFunder and SeedInvest. Um, but looking back, we concluded that uh, these events are just the tip of the iceberg. Right. We have a very special guest with us here today on the show, King's Crown analyst and skiing aficionado, Olivia uh, Stroll. Hey, Chris. Hi. Hey, Sean. Great to hey, be here. Olivia. Great to see you. Happy 2021. Yes. Uh, so uh, I had to plug the skiing thing there. Where are you right now, Olivia? I am actually in Southern Utah right now, right outside of Zion National Park. Very cool. Yes. Have you hit the slopes much? I have twice now. I, I got a 12 runs in on Sunday. So that was really exciting. Very cold though. <laughs> I've never done anything but a bunny slope. So that's, uh, that's really cool. <laughs> I wanna learn, I really do. Do you ski, Chris? I, I do ski. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, only recently began doing a little bit of West Coast skiing. And I have to say, uh, it's quite the game changer from growing up on the East Coast. So happy you're out West and, uh, and I hope you enjoy it. That's awesome. Yeah, definitely. Thank God for Zoom. Uh, so Olivia, <laughs> uh, as I mentioned in our last episode, Chris and I touched on how the market, um, the King's Crowds rating and analyzing the online private markets, um, we do that every day, but you took it a step further and published a piece on King's Crowd's website titled Year in Review, Crowdfunding in 2020. Um, before you dive, we dive into what you, you, know, what, what you discovered, Olivia, I'd like to mention that we made Olivia's article public for anyone that's curious about understanding more about the online private markets. Um, and all you need to do is just go to kingscrowd.com and click on industry analysis for Olivia's article, as well as a host of other free contents. Um, so Olivia, when you were sitting down to do this, apparently after doing multiple runs on the ski slopes, um, how did you put this piece together? 
Yeah, so we've seen some really exciting activity in, in the markets this past year. And so I wanted to really, you know, dig deeper into that. So I took all of the 2020 equity deals, which included for us uh, both common and preferred equity, as well as safes and convertible notes and our brand new ratings for them, which are, were super exciting. Uh, we wanted to bring you some year-end statistics. So I thought I would kick it off by checking out uh, the geography of these deals. So as we know, you know, Silicon Valley, real hotspot for venture capital. Um, not surprisingly, also a hotspot for uh, the online private markets. Um, I will say though, there was a really wide geographical distribution in, in our data. Uh, we had deal flow from 45 states and territories, including DC and Puerto Rico. Uh, California was, was definitely the most dense, followed pretty closely behind by New York. Uh, Florida and Texas also led the country in deal flow, as well as Massachusetts. Uh, so again, saw really, really wide uh, deal flow uh, geographically. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Olivia, in, in 2020, did we actually hit every state having a company that raised capital? Yeah, so we were just short. Uh, I think five states were missing. I believe it was West Virginia, the Dakotas, um, and then maybe maybe Kansas and Arkansas. Uh, yeah, might that's have been kind of <laughs> I would expect somebody to, I don't know, do a raise for their candle business or something. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I, I will say that I, I have heard that between when you know the online private market started about four years ago through 2020 we did hit all 50 states and territories uh, have now had at least one capital raise that's been successful in in each one of those locales but it, it's so wonderful to see because you know one of the things that we've seen in traditional venture capital and, and one of the, the challenges we see with that market is that over 90 percent of the funding only occurs in three cities Boston, New York, and San Francisco. And what a more opportune time than when everything is beginning to go remote and be more fluid of where you can actually be and find talent that we're actually finding ways in the online private markets to fund people across the entire geographic scope. And we talk a lot about you know, diversity and inclusion. Well, diversity and inclusion is about more female founders. It is about more minority founders, but it's also about diversity of opinions and ideas. And that comes from living in different places. So that's really, really cool that we had almost 50 states that had coverage of actually raising capital in places like Texas and Florida that have been good in venture, but they haven't been great to see more numbers going there. That That's awesome. Yeah, were there a bunch of uh, Were there a bunch of raises out of Austin, Texas, Olivia? They are, uh, you know, on the upswing lately. You know, we saw a lot out of Texas. Interestingly, I saw a lot out of Tennessee recently, um, which, wow. which was surprising. Yeah, actually, funny enough, I don't know if you guys saw the other day, there was a, a report, I think from U-Haul, that the most number of U-Hauls going into a state was Tennessee, of any other state. So wow. a lot of people going there, which is pretty cool. It might become a new little innovation hub. Yeah, for sure. Head to Nashville. So, uh, Olivia, I got to ask, we are King's Crowd. We are the uh, only and first uh, ratings and analytics platform for our, the online private markets. How do we rate all these companies? Yeah, so we currently have four buckets for ratings uh, and recently introduced a brand new bucket, which is the neutral deal. Um, so underweights, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, are those that we feel maybe wouldn't make, you know, great returns on investment for probably several reasons. Those neutral deals that we introduced midway through the year, um, we think could make some, some decent return, but definitely come with some risk. 
the deals to watch are those that impressed our investment staff in more than one ratings category. And then finally, the top deals are those that we think are really poised for high returns and you know, unicorn potential. So you can see um, if you're following along with the article that uh, we had the most uh, deals to watch this year. So as a reminder, again, the neutral deals only popped up midway through the year. Otherwise, I think you know, these statistics might be a little bit skewed. Um, but as expected, those top deals were our most selective category, followed by underweights and then neutrals and then those top deals. Got it. And, and for those who don't know us as well, if you've ever invested in a public equity, Olivia, would you kind of equate it to an analyst report where they provide strong buy or buy recommendations or sell recommendations? Many ways, we're kind of doing something similar, correct? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Um, that's really interesting. So one of the things that I, I hear from people a lot on deal flow is, well, I look at these platforms and, you know, it looks like there's a lot of not very good deals. And what I say to them is, well, yeah, in, in venture, in every private equity investment shop, they see thousands of deals a year and they only end up picking a small handful of deals that they really like. Do you have any stats in, uh, on uh, number of total deals that were out there and then the number that ended up kind of that top deal, deal to watch bucket? Oh man, I would say that top deals, generally speaking, comprise of uh, the top five to 10% of our total deal flow. Um, I don't have any exact numbers for you, but um, generally speaking, top deals five to 10%. And then deals to watch usually top 20% at the, at the very least. Um, so I would say the deals that are receiving this positive coverage make up, you know, roughly 20 out of every 100 deals we see. Got it, got it. For a lot of the year, we didn't cover every deal out there. So that's also something to take into account, right? For sure, yeah. And that was that was part of what uh, led to the neutral deal rating. Um, we've been expanding as a team and are continuing to provide you know comprehensive coverage of the market. And that's where that neutral deal came in, for sure. Very and cool. it's pretty cool because we now have, it's both quantitative and qualitative, right? So we, we do kind of a one to five scoring metric system, but then in addition, we go and do this overlay of more qualitative uh, in-depth research. Can you tell us a little bit about what that process looks like when you guys get on the phone every week and discuss all the deals? Yeah, for sure. So we have um, a, a backend uh, database called Merlin, which we use every week to input all kinds of data on the companies. So um, market statistics, business model, all kinds of information on the founders, the terms of the deal, how differentiated the product offering is. Um, and that, that uh, computes out to a number one through five. And then from there, we meet as a team and kind of discuss the more qualitative aspects that you can't really put it in numbers. A lot of times that has to do with risk. Um, and that's something that, that we're actually talking about incorporating into the algorithm in the future but uh, is something that is, is really hard to quantify. Um, so we get together and our team has such a range of expertise across industries and you know, brings all kinds of different opinions to the table. So we meet twice a week to discuss these deals and that's when we end up labeling uh, the, each of the deals into these four buckets. Awesome. So in total for 2020, I know we had 100% market coverage in 2020 in Rex CF uh, specifically. How many deals did that kind of pan out to be? And do you know uh, the dollar amounts that went into those companies? Oh, um, you know, I don't know if I have the exact numbers on that right now. I think it was somewhere around like what, 180 to $200 million that was deployed? 
Yeah, I believe so. I know December was actually a record month. Um, we had over 28 million in raises with 21 million in November and October. Um, and last December, that was uh, that number was 11 million with 282 companies raising. So that was a massive jump. That's amazing. So basically 3x in one year, which is pretty yeah. common with what we saw with COVID, right? It was like March, we had that that heavy slowness and then April came and it just seemed like the market doubled and by the end of the year was tripling. It's, it's unbelievable. The really big surprising, the other thing was, uh, wasn't it, we were all kind of like joking about it in Slack, uh, was the last week of the year. We were like, where, where did all these deals come from? And why did everybody, I don't know, it was like they, they were rushing to finish the test at the end of the year or something. <laughs> so uh, was it 50 deals at, right at the end of the year that closed and had like huge pushes to finish the year? Oh yeah, we the investment team was busy <laughs> the last week of December for sure. Howie didn't believe the numbers. How many times did yeah. he check that? He's like, yeah, I spent hours checking. And we're like, it's not a good use of your time. It's fine. <laughs> so uh, Olivia, one of the major differences between the online private markets and the public markets is when you go to your Schwab account, you log in, you buy, you know, Tesla or Parker Gamble or whatever. It's a, it's a stock. It's common equity. Right. Most people don't really go into preferred stocks or even bonds. So they won't buy bonds. That's not true in the online private markets. So what happened when, uh, basically throughout the year, did you see any trends with chosen security types? And obviously most of these can be converted to equity later. Like there's little nuances that we, we, we try to help investors with, but what trends did you see? Yeah, of course. So we actually um, broke down the ratings buckets by security type. So one really interesting trend, and I, I should note before diving into this, common equity was above and beyond the most common security type across the online private markets in 2020. Uh, that was closely followed by safes and then convertible notes, uh, followed by preferred equity. So in the deal to watch category, we actually had uh, the most common equity deals. And that was actually also the case with the underweights. Um, the top deals, however, we saw the most representation with safes or simple agreements for future equity. That's um, crazy, that was, really? Yeah, yeah, very interesting. And uh, again, I should note that, that there is a, a skewed, uh, the overall deals, you see more common equity for sure. Um, whereas preferred equity, obviously, for, for certain reasons, is going to be a little bit more yeah. rare. Um, but we did see more representation proportionally in the top deals with the preferred equity. Got it. Um, throw this up to the group. What calculus does a founder or the, the, the team make when they're choosing between equity and a, doing a, raising by a safer? Like, why? Like, what's the, the thinking behind each? Yeah, Sean, I think we, we hit on this maybe in one of our, our first episodes. But, uh, you know, there was a common history of doing common equity many, many years ago in early stage investing. And then as more of these accelerators came to market um, and people stopped wanting to have to like peg a price to or value to a company so early on when things were kind of really crazy with valuations, especially during the dot-com boom, we saw this emergence of convertible notes and safes. And it basically tried to simplify the process of trying to, it's like, you know what, let's punt on figuring out what the value of this company is today. We'll just say, we're not going to pay any more than X in the future for this company. And that really kind of led to the emergence of convertible notes and safes. Um, and, I, you know, across Y Combinator, 500 startups, almost none of those do price rounds. And it's funny because one of the reasons why people like preferred equity is because they think we get a liquidity preference traditionally. And what a liquidity preference typically means is, you know, if things kind of go awry, 
you're going to make sure that those investors get their money back before any of the other investors. And so it might actually end up hampering some of the other investors who are in on common equity. But now common equity is actually becoming something of real value because what's happening is we're seeing the emergence of these secondary platforms on places like Start Engine that just launched back in October, November, and Net Capital, which has basically been launched the entirety of 2020. So by having common equity, you can choose and pick whenever you want to sell that your shares at whatever price you decide is something you're willing to, to get back for your shares. Um, so liquidity preference almost doesn't matter in some ways from my perspective when you're using these online private markets if they have these secondary exchanges, which I think is really, really cool. For sure. Plus, like with preferred equity, you know, it matters if the company you have preferred stock in is like General Motors or just something. But like when a startup goes under, like, do I want the pencils? Like, do I want the desks? Like, what am I gonna? But I don't know. I guess we could have gotten some whiskey if Cleveland whiskey went under. There, there are certainly benefits of preferred equity. It's if they're offering it, it's not a bad thing. It shows that they're trying to service uh, the investor which is great. I think it, there's nothing wrong with uh, providing preferred equity. I appreciate that companies do it. I think it's a wonderful thing. As we see more emergence of the secondary platforms, I think common equity can actually really make a comeback and become a more main source of, uh, of how companies raise capital. Uh, so I just found it. December was 28 million. Like I think uh, Christie's may have said earlier, um, 21 million in November and October. So that's that's a jump right there. That's cool. Um, Olivia, when would you say you were busiest this past year? When were you, <laughs> you like, want a guess, don't, don't talk to me. Uh, Take a guess. Oh, man. <laughs> I talked to Sweeney. She has to write up all the deals. I don't know. Every couple of months, you guys just seem to disappear. Was it the summer? You're right. Did, did, did you cheat? <laughs> a little. A little. I, mean, I just looked at the yeah. chart. We saw a ton of deal flow this year in July, which was really interesting. Um, oh yeah, there it is. April's yeah. though. What's up with April, yeah. right? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I thought it was maybe like a quarterly thing, but it looks like, it almost looks like your standard distribution curve just a little bit where it, you know, mm. spikes close, in summer yeah. and then, yeah, really interesting. Chris, why did they all rush at the end of the year? If they waited a month, they could raise five million with this new regulation. Like, what's well, unfortunately, <laughs> yeah, and unfortunately, the the way the regulation works is once the regulation was passed back in November, it had to go into a registrar, and unfortunately, um, the rules haven't been written into the registrar yet. It's an it's an administrative task, but the government hasn't gone ahead and done it. And then it's 60 days after that. So they weren't going to be able to do it in, in the first of the year. I understand as an entrepreneur and, and having done this before, creating timelines and forcing people to actually take action is very, very hard. So when you say this is the last day you can invest and end of year is a perfect way to do that. Hey, we're going into 2021 and we want to have the capital in the bank. It's a great way to get people to actually take action. So I completely understand uh, why companies would decide to do that. But it is interesting to see that uh, so many companies were raising back in July. It's uh, That's pretty cool. Poor Olivia in the summer. Oh, you're so, taking your summer vacation now, though, so that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> How many deals are you guys seeing on a weekly basis? Is it five Ooh. new deals? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we actually ended up having to split our investment meetings um, into two days a week. We, we used to only cover deals once a week. So if that's any indication of how the market's doing, I would say it's pretty good. <laughs> wow. um, 
I would say we cover around 12 deals twice a week. So 24 deals total per week. And that is just equity. So that is, you know, not including any sort of revenue share debt deals. Um, so yeah, massive amounts of deal flow lately from when, you know, I came on, I think two years ago and we would maybe have 10 a week if we were lucky. Yeah. Now we just had to hire a new analyst, obviously, yeah. so that happened. Um, and this is to say nothing of all things that are automatically rated through Merlin, so that's mm -hmm. cool. Um, what uh, what do we think is going to happen this year, guys? We gotta we, we gotta give the audience something to look forward to. But yeah, I'll let Olivia start on that one, and I'm happy to provide my thoughts as well. I mean, if it's any indication, I think uh, December showed us that this, the, the markets are, are booming. And I think that it's a really good time to be investing in startups. Um, I don't know, Chris, do you have any, any uh, other insight? Yeah, I'll, I'll provide my, my uh, predictions. There could very well be wrong, but I'll provide my thoughts. So last year, we saw 455 raises successfully close, uh, which is up 40% from 323 in 2019. We saw it go to you know 186 million in uh, in equity deals closed, which was well up uh, of 78 percent from 2019. Now that the regulation changes are going to occur, it's probably you know 60 days out. I know they're getting close to finally putting the registrar. So say it begins in Q2. So now you have that five million limit, which does a couple things. We have more investors in the market that we're already seeing. People have become more comfortable. COVID has actually I think pushed things ahead a few years. Uh, into the future of people getting comfortable transacting online into private companies. So you already have those kind of market factors at play. Now you can raise more capital. And Olivia, I'm sure you see this all the time looking at some companies. When you get a really good deal, it sells out fast. Like everyone oh, yeah. on it. And then we get all of those inquiries. Hey, do you know why it sold out? Is there any room left in this? Or like, we're not even the platform. We can't help you. But what I think it says is if those companies could have raised 5 million, they would have raised five times the amount that they did. So the best deals, I think, are going to raise way more money, which is going to help to, to move the market forward. And then there's going to be more deal flow because now that they can raise 5 million, we're going to see so many more Series A deals coming into the space. So with all of that said, I think that we'll easily double, if not triple, to over $500 million this year in investment, just under the Reg CF framework. Um, and I, I kind of think 2022 could be the first billion dollar year. For I was going to ask that about this year, man. You're talking about 1 million to 5 million. It I could don't know. Be. John, I, I, I could see it. I think it's a billion dollars this year. That would be an outstanding outcome. Olivia might not love that so much, but I think <laughs> <laughs> No. <laughs> end, end of 2021. I, I think it could happen. Do we, do we have a bet here, guys? Are we, are we doing this? <laughs> Are we placing wagers? I, I'm open-minded. Bullet a Bitcoin. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Like four, what was it? Four eighty-eight last year successfully raised equity. I mean, like that's yeah, four hundred fifty-five uh, successfully closed yeah. in twenty twenty. Yes, yeah, so that's just short of twenty-three hundred raises at five x this year. And I know that's a loose connection because it's the amount you can raise versus that. But you know, if you say to a startup investor, I mean, Chris, you've raised money for King's Crowd, like. You say to them, hey, you can raise a million dollars at one time if you do all this work or whatever. And you're like, yeah, that's cool. Da, 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 da. But like you say five million, like. It's a big jump. It's a really big jump. And I think it's going to be hugely valuable to the market. And we now have the infrastructure that's supporting this space. 
uh, in a way that it wasn't there before. You know, the market did have to mature. And as the market matures, we're seeing it with crypto, where the big institutions are starting to come into play. And it's, you know, not surprising me that we're getting calls from the big institutions, from wealth advisory groups, from RIAs. They're all starting to consider this as an asset class they need to move their investors into now that they're seeing that it actually does work. Who's leading that? Can you say, Chris? Who's, I, I can't get into that. Uh. <laughs> It's Charles interesting Schwab, if you're listening. Sorry, Olivia. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, we, we've seen some some really established companies raising on uh, under Reg CF recently, especially in the last, I would say, week or so. Um, like who? Seen, seen uh, I know Quadrant Biosciences raised. Oh, like that's right. Yeah. Twenty plus million dollar valuation. Bio might be a thing with yeah. the market, and yeah, that might yeah. be really a thing. Nobody raised money to fight COVID, though, right? Like none of the. Uh, you'd be surprised. Okay. <laughs> Any yeah, other big names that stick out to you? Ooh, um, Cortex on WeFunder. I believe they they uh, had some really impressive um, partners on board and, and a lot in revenue. I think several million in revenue. Um, I need to check, double check those numbers, but I actually just wrote the report on them the other day and they're, they're partnered with L'Oreal, Oreo, all kinds of big names. So oh, yeah, wow. we're seeing some really, really impressive companies. Very cool. Yeah, I actually just saw uh, one on our system, uh, Sugar Fina, which is just mm. a very cool, like high-end snack company. Um, I was going to say it has to be snacks. Yeah. Right, yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> they're really beautiful. Like they're really, really good looking. And they definitely have a very big brand name out on the West Coast. Um, and I know I even started seeing it out here on the East Coast. So uh, pretty cool little company and, and need to see them, you know, some of these bigger brand names, uh, you know, coming into the space and raising some capital. I was actually uh, gifted some sugar fina for I, my graduation uh, two years ago. <laughs> oh, yeah, wow. Definitely a yeah. big gifting. Yeah, absolutely. No, and, and they're in all the store, you know, Nordstrom and, you know, all the high-end stores kind of carry their products and, and it makes sense. It looks really good. So um, cool, cool to see that coming into fruition. Uh, well, guys, the key to a successful podcast is to leave the, uh, the audience hungry and wanting more. And I think... That really does it with the the sugar fina. So good job. <laughs> I want a snack now, so I'm gonna go get one. Um, but thank you both for uh, calling in. This is a uh, really, really, really good call. Of course, thank yeah. you, Sean. Yeah, thanks, Sean. Uh, enjoy the ski scopes, Olivia. I will. All right. Have a good one, guys. Uh, and have a great day, Chris. Talk to you soon. Take care now. Bye. Yep. Bye. And that is it for us, folks. If you have any questions about the online private markets or King's Crowd's proprietary ratings and analytics platform, Merlin, just email us at podcast at kingscrowd.com. For Olivia Strobel and Crystal Strino, I'm Sean O'Reilly. Thanks for listening.